Welcome to the SDG Talks podcast, where we discuss all things around the sustainable development goals and the roadmap to 2030. We are your co-hosts, James and Kevin, here to take you along the SDG ride. We hope you enjoy today's SDG Talks podcast. You can't really understand the present and make policies for the future without looking what happened in the past. And by acknowledging the past, you're not demonizing people or groups. By acknowledging what happened and what caused the the current uh, situation. In fact, I'm a firm believer, you really cannot make policies for the present look forward to a better future without really acknowledging what happened in the past, full acknowledgement of that. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the SDG Talks podcast. Today, I have a conversation with two amazing individuals. The first is Dr. Helen Bond, who's an associate professor of curriculum and instruction in the School of Education at Howard University, and is also the co-chair of the SDSN USA, SDSN standing for the Sustainable Development Solutions Network. We will also hear from Elena Lynch, who's a senior researcher at SDSN. In this conversation, they're both going to break down these reports that recently came out. The first one, Never More Urgent, a preliminary review of how the U.S. is leaving Black, Hispanic, and Indigenous communities behind. And the other, In the Red, the U.S. failure to deliver on the promise of racial equality. We're going to learn more about how we can use these reports, not just read them and see them as words on paper, but look at them as a technical resource an advocacy tool, a research agenda for everyone to be able to take action. We're going to hear in the podcast about why we need to look backwards and we do need to understand the root causes of some of these inequalities, but how we can use that as inspiration and a framework to take better action moving forward. And you'll hear in the podcast on what we can do to better inform and create policy decisions to then hopefully create better outcomes. I know you're going to enjoy listening to this as much as I enjoyed creating. And always remember to keep on SDG talking. All right. Welcome, everyone, back to the SDG Talks podcast. Really excited to be sitting here alongside Dr. Helen Bond and Elena Lynch with the SDSN Sustainable Development Solutions Network, the USA chapter. Welcome, Helen and Elena. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thank you. Great. Thanks so much for having us. Of course. So where are you both located today? I'm calling from Brooklyn, New York. Brooklyn. I I live about an hour outside of Washington, D.C., but I'm calling in from my parents' farm in Ohio. All right. Should be quiet, but you never know. You never know. Well, I'm right next to you in the Midwest here in Chicago. And it's amazing the things that the internet, whether it's from COVID or just uh, the Zoom world allows us to do to be able to have a conversation here today. And it's been really exciting to watch everything that SDSN is doing. And frankly, really excited to hear about some of the recent reports that you're working on. But for those of us that are still maybe learning about the SDGs and, and what are these sustainable development goals? I mean, I got these, the SDGs behind me, these 17 beautiful blocks but kind of, you know, what are they? And, and Helen, I'd love you to start of kind of like, what are the SDGs and how do they relate to one another? Sometimes the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, are referred to as the global goals. They're the 17 goals, which really frame the overall framework of the United Nations system. And so there are 17 goals, beginning with 
no po- new poverty, no hunger, all the way to climate change, to, to life on Earth, life beneath the oceans. And they're connected through, I think, and we'll talk a little bit more about here shortly, but I'll let Elena jump in. They're connected through what we call the leave no one behind agenda. And so I'll pass the baton to Elena. Thanks, Helen. The Leave No One Behind agenda is the first agenda of the SDGs, and it's one of the main ways that the SDGs address inequality. And the Leave No One Behind agenda, to summarize, is just saying that those who have been least served by development progress thus far need to be prioritized and have the SDGs delivered to them first in any activity that we're doing trying to deliver the SDGs. I'd like to maybe add a little bit to that as well. Even though these large global goals, the 17 goals, they are measured by 161 indicators. And what's so important about the Leave No One Behind agenda is because these universal goals are really founded by what we call universal values. And I think the Leave No One Behind agenda is one of those really critical, as Elena has just addressed, a universal value, where you reach the poorest of the poor first. And delivering these goals and living up to this these global promises that you reach back and you measure and you look for who's being left the furthest behind. And that's where the development agenda starts and moves uh, forward. And one thing about the Leave No One Behind agenda that I find so, so important, and I would like for people not, as we look forward to implementing the 17 goals, that we don't forget that looking at the root causes of leaving people behind, why people are being left behind, is often due to inequality and discrimination. You know, for example, gender discrimination, discrimination against other different particular groups. And so the whole idea of leave no one behind, and I think it's been framing the great work that Elena Lynch has led at SDSN, and I'm glad to be a part of that with Sonia and Jeff Sachs from Columbia, Dan Etsy from Yale, and Gordon McCord from UC San Diego, is that sustainability must be grounded, you know, in this idea of leaving no one behind and being inclusive, sustainable development. Thank you for all that context and a lot to break down and expand upon in that. And I couldn't agree more that it's important to understand this root cause and, and that history is important as we move forward. And I liked about the report and I want to ask you about is that I think it's it's 2021 and we can only do so much. Like we can't go back in time. We don't have any sort of Hermione Granger time clock to go backwards. You know, it just doesn't exist. So it's not that we want to necessarily, I think, point fingers and say, hey, you were the bad person. You caused his wrongs. And I'd, I'd like you to explain about that balance of understanding history, but not trying to demonize people moving forward and instead trying to use that as a sort of a framework of how we can prevent history, prevent making mistakes again, but especially collectively, you know, SDG 17 partnerships, build these partnerships to actually move forward without sort of demonizing or, you know, really pointing the finger at everyone. So kind of a long-winded question, but what do you think? Okay, I'll, I'll start with that. You know, Kevin, as you were speaking, I was trying to remember the famous quote by Mark Twain. History is never really history. History is actually the present. I've been working with a little bit with UNESCO, looking at this. I've taken a long way around to to your answer to your question, that in order to anticipate or think about the future or where we're going from here, you know, you really have to look back at history. And your question of 
how do we take in history? Because in that report, never more urgent that I was just looking at Elena just last night and the, the wonderful work that we and Clarence Lussane did, you know, we took a very historical stance. We talked about what are the discrepancies looking at specific SDGs, but we also gave some history, some historical context, because you can't really understand the present and make policies for the future without looking what happened in the past. And by acknowledging the past, you're not demonizing people or groups. By acknowledging what happened and what caused the, the current uh, situation. In fact, I'm a firm believer, you really cannot make policies for the present, look forward to a better future without really acknowledging what happened in the past, full acknowledgement of that. And so we tried to do that in Never More Urgent, and I'm sure we'll, we'll get to that report in a little bit, how the U.S. is leaving Blacks, Hispanics, and the indigenous groups uh, behind in terms of development. So I'll stop with that and give Elena a little chance to talk, and maybe we can talk further. That's a, a great research interest of mine, and so I could talk all day about it. Great. Thanks. Elena? So I completely agree with Helen. I think that we can't understand where we are without context, and it can be very disorienting to try to figure out what needs to be done if we don't understand why we are and why we have the problems that we do. I think another thing that often happens is that the wrong groups end up getting demonized when we don't understand history. And so I think one of the ways if we don't want to have any groups demonizing is to actually understand why we are where we are. You know, Octavia Butler says tomorrow is the child of today. And so we really need to understand where we are today if we want to figure out root causes and if we want to have clear understandings of what has worked and what lineages we're living in that might give us ideas and inspiration for the future. You're both dropping some great, great quotes here that I'm excited to repurpose. Incredibly relevant, and and I, I just we could, we could talk about that all day. And I think as you were talking to, and I read this report more, something that really jumped out to me is this this word of served. How well are these communities served? And part of that's based on historical inequalities, coupled in with COVID and and all these different modern challenges. Uh, but I wanted to ask you more about that word served and sort of like. What does it mean to serve a population? And there's a there's a hundred variables that go into it. But when you're looking at how well this community served, like what are you looking at to determine if this community is well or poorly served? You know, I think in the context of that report, that can be a little bit of a misnomer. The term serve, there's lots of ways to say that. And I think the way that we were intending that meaning to be taken is how well the policies, the practices, the actions, the movement of the United States government, localities, civil society, how well they set up an infrastructure, a level playing field for the implementation of the SDGs. Really, when we say serve, we're talking about how the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, the global goals, how well are they being implemented and communities of colors versus white communities. You know, why are there garbage dumps or EPA major dumping grounds in black and brown and indigenous communities and not in other communities? And so why is justice looking at one of our reports, you know, in certain areas where there are areas of color, you get excessive police brutality. You have policies and practices like redlining. 
And so when we look at the SDGs and, you know, health and well-being, quality education, no inequality, and then there are indicators in which how those are measured. Those indicators can be localized. They can be modified to that particular context but that's how they're, they're measured. So this notion of serving may, may make people think, well, you're waiting to be served to be given something. When in fact, when you look at the SDGs, they're really basic human rights. If you look at the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point that Helen made about the, you know, the implications of this term. I, mean, I really appreciate that, that insight that you offered, Helen. One of the, I'll just speak to how we actually measured it in the, you know, the quantitative nerd side of this report. So one of the things we looked at, the things, types of things we looked at is how healthy are our people have, you know, in our collective vision of what society is and what type of world we want to live in. Do people have access to clean water? Are they breathing clean air? Have we organized ourselves so that everyone has enough food to eat? to eat and so that we can use our plentiful natural and human resources to make sure that this is a nice and like dignified place to be. And so we measured that, you know, by looking at clean water, like I mentioned, hunger, poverty, access to doctors. Are there enough doctors? Are people able to afford to see them? So these are the types, some of the types of ways we actually measured the goods and services that we've organized together for everyone to have. And I appreciate the the call out of, of the quantitative data that is, you know, you could call nerd data, but it's important. But then I also wanted to then compare that to some of that qualitative data that is the on the ground conversations, you know, eating one of my favorite entrepreneurs, Gary Vaynerchuk always mentions clouds and dirt, you know, you gotta be conceptual in the clouds. And then sometimes you gotta be in the dirt, eating the dirt on the ground, doing the hard work. And I would like to kind of hear your thoughts in regards to like how, are we balancing that quantitative data and qualitative data to then be able to drive good policy? I read throughout this report a lot of how to create policy and get the proper outcomes, but how are we balancing these different types of data to really drive good policy with the goal of hopefully getting good outcomes? And then my final thing is, do we have any maybe examples or success stories that we can point to as a, as a good example? Let me start out with... Um... In the Never More Urgent report, which is it's very data rich, but we built it, we sort of, in case the COVID, right, when we were writing it, we were really in the middle of the pandemic, which we are still in the middle of, of the continuing pandemic, but we used COVID-19 to connect how these inequalities, this not non-implementation of the SDGs very well in these communities, and how that affected them on the ground through the lens of COVID-19. And I think one of the things, especially with Never More Urgent report, we did such, I think we did a really good job in connecting this, all this qualitative data. I wrote, was very close to the section on SDG4, quality education. And we actually, we had a diagram that connected all this data, even the historical practices, to how they're affecting people within this pandemic on the ground. And we gave some case studies out of Chicago with that. But we connected the five major areas of disparity is what we found in Never More Urgent. They were education, justice, food and housing, insecurity, economic security and health and, and well-being. 
And we showed in many instances, for example, that people with a bachelor's degree and beyond did not have to have, you know, uh, customer facing work. They were able to telework, which enabled them to be shielded somewhat from the pandemic. And we brought in counter examples of that. So we looked at numbers, we looked at policies, but we we framed it around COVID-19 to show the disparity on the ground in the midst of a global pandemic. Elena, anything you wanted to add to that? You know, one of the things that I was thinking about solutions and where are places where we're finding solutions. And one of the things that I really value about the Never More Urgent report was not only did it talk about the ways that problems were created, but it also talked about the many ways that people had worked together to solve their own problems. And I think that's another value of looking back at history because we can see what has worked. Where have we been able to overcome these places where um, there was great tragedy and or oppression? And one of the things that I think comes out of that report is this idea that those who are closest to the problem, who are, who are feeling the effects most acutely, are also closest to the solution and have often been the drivers of change that we all dream of and hope to see. And so I think one solution that I think about is that we should really be looking to the people who are suffering the most to understand where, what needs to happen and what needs to change. And one example of that that just came out this past week was from the group called the Indigenous Environmental Network. They posted a report or they produced a report called Indigenous Resistance Against Carbon. And it evaluated different indigenous resistance from the years 2010 to 2019 across the U.S. and Canada and looked at how effective um, that resistance has been to creating, to reducing carbon emissions. And they found that the successful resistance against the resistance that they have done that have been successful have changed projects and has reduced carbon emissions by roughly 28% of the size of the U.S. and Canadian air pollution. So that work itself has been incredibly effective already. And so they also talked about an additional 12% is wrapped up in projects that are ongoing. And so I think one of the ways that we should be looking to solutions is looking to the groups of people who are most impacted and have already organized and started to find solutions. Because when we start looking at those solutions, we find that they're incredibly successful. Amazing context. And and I can speak from firsthand experience as well. I've, I've done a lot of projects in Flint, Michigan, Navajo Nation, and different places in Asia and Africa. And I think I came in always thinking, I've got the best technology and the best solution that's going to work for you. But it wasn't until actually having pretty in-depth conversations with, let's say, a, a mother of three in Flint, Michigan that had been giving contaminated water to her child without me kind of fully realizing, as much as I was demonizing bottled water and wanting long-term solution, the bottle of water was still needed until they had the trust back. And I remember, you know, it, you never really know until you, I'll never t- fully know. I can have as much empathy as I want and, and remove myself from the situation. But as you mentioned, no one really knows the best solution except for those on the ground. And it's so important to have that critical interface. And that is, I'm speaking to myself as a grassroots entrepreneur, but also wanted to speak to others. And I want, if anything, for you, Helen, Elena, continue to elaborate on that of like, as you can read this report and we can look at data and the data is so important to be able to show actual improvements. How can we take this report and this information and communicate it to those change makers that want to do good? And so to entrepreneurs first, and then can also speak to city officials and, and even the community itself. But I think entrepreneurs and decision makers, you know, how can they take this information and use it to 
better direct their future actions? Thank you, Kevin. That's a really great question. And that's one of the things that we've recently established at SDSN USA is a working group entitled Diversity, Equity, and Justice for Sustainability, for Sustainable Development, rather. Let's give it the full term. And that's one of the things we're looking at. Not only is never more urgent, groundbreaking, we have another report shortly titled In the Red, where a set of indices, and Elena will talk a lot about that. She led a lot of the indice work. I wrote the preface there. And so what we plan to do as a working group is to take these reports and make them more well-known. I mean, this is really some ground groundbreaking work. And Elena can uh, tell you more about this as well, that it's really one of the first looks at looking at the SDGs and measuring progress in related to a majority community to minority communities in the U.S. and looking at the progress of that implementation. In other words, no one has really looked at Black, Brown, and Indigenous groups and how well the SDGs are being implemented in those communities. This is some of the first work done on that. We've looked, we've seen some things around gender discrimination, which is really important. Again, this notion of discrimination as being one of the things that undermine sustainable development. So back to more squarely to your question, we want to raise the level of visibility of this work, first of all, in communities most affected with, for example, I love to hear about this indigenous resistance against carbonization project. Elena, I was just thinking that would be a wonderful group because in our working group, we're planning on applying for a Spencer grant and we're planning on holding a number of convenings. For example, holding a convening with such a group to give their work visibility and aid their work by sharing our data and how that data can be used. And so that's, I think, a good example of how we'd like to move forward uh, in terms of the solution space. Thanks, Elena. Do you want to add to that too? Sure. One thing I was thinking about, you know, what do we all do? How do we all actually start this work? Or if we're already started, how do we make it more effective? And one of the things I think that sometimes gets in our way is we think like we need to have this really fancy degree from this really prestigious university, or we think we need to be super millionaires and can give a billion dollar grant. But actually so much of the work that has been done, particularly around confronting inequality has been done by people who are have full-time jobs, have children, have care responsibilities, are poor, are often, you know, in the least privileged position, and they have been effective because they've been working together and they've been able to work in a coordinated way. And so I think one of the ways that regardless of our position as in the world as an entrepreneur or working in a nonprofit or as a researcher, we need to be finding ways to actually be collaborating and working together. Where can we show up as a group? Where can we collaborate or find inspiration or camaraderie and community? And how can we work in coordinated ways? Because that is, seems to be one of the most effective ways that has worked from what we found in the research. Yeah. Thanks, Elena. And yeah, I love all the SDGs, but the one that to me always comes up is SDG 17, Partnership for the Goals. And that I, I like how you mentioned, Elena, you, could you have a great degree and be a billionaire? Yes, those things help, but that doesn't mean that's required to be able to make an impact. And partnership is very broad from across the 194 countries, from federal, state, local, from group to group. And I'd like to elaborate a little bit more on that and, and sort of give some 
ideas to the listeners about you know what are ways to partner like if you are either impacted in the community if you are someone that doesn't have money and wants to help if you're someone that has some money and wants to help like where do you start like if you're looking at some of the some of the issues reported shown in the report impacting the different communities that you mentioned where does one start and of course that could go 100 which ways but helen i'm looking at you to start what are some ways if you're just sitting there on the drawing board where do you where do you go step one well what a great Great question. The ASHI, the Association for the Advancement of Sustainability in Higher Education, is featuring a, a monograph entitled Sustainability for Justice. And I write about in there in terms of Goal 17, first of all, the great work that ASHI does, as well as so many other organizations. But I write about the role of HBCUs, in particular, minority-serving institutions, as great partners for this work. And we highlighted the work of, H, of MSI's minority-serving institutions, which include HBCUs, historically Black colleges and universities, predominantly Black colleges and universities, Hispanic-serving HSI's institutions, tribal colleges and universities, TCUs, as well as Asian Pacific and Islander-serving institutions. There are actually universities that tend to have a predominantly a population of, of uh, Asian Americans and their diaspora groups. And so by really partnering with them on various, for examples, I'll give you an example of Howard University. Uh, there's a partnership between various foundations and agencies with a new Center for Women's Global Leadership that was just uh, founded on Howard University, being led by Dr. Uh, Duwani of Howard. I'm one of the founding members. And really looking at some work around SDG 5, gender inequality. But just the example that I gave in the piece that I wrote was a an alternative spring break. And I know that's not a novel concept. Many universities have that. But it's situated at Howard in a curriculum with the focus of that university being really justice and peace around the world and serving the disadvantage. So, so partnering with HBCUs and minority serving institutions, I think is really one great way to, you know, to, uh, to, to spread the sustainability message and to partner with them on the many programs that, that they have. So, and that will be out in October. So glad to just heard from, heard from them today. So. Well, one thing I'll say that people could do is coming from SDSN, which is a network of research-based institutions, people doing research, academic institutions, all working together to solve or come up with solutions for the sustainable development goals. If you yourself are at a university or knowledge-producing institution, then um, I would encourage you to come join us. There are more than 40 networks. They're either based geographically or thematically. So the USA has a network. That's where we're calling you from today. But there's also networks on the, the Amazon or um, the EU or um, East Africa. So all these places, in, regardless of what your research interest is, there are um, people who you could join and work together with um, at SDSN. The second thing is that I think that SDGs actually offer a really great template for how to do this work if you're just getting started. Um, Dr. Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson, she runs, she is the host of How to Save a Planet. Um, she talks about if you're trying to get involved to think about where you have joy because this work that we're trying to do, we should also want to be sustaining ourselves. Um, and the best way to sustainably stay in this work is to be doing it in a way that gives you joy. 
And then I think the SDGs offer the second piece. So if the thing that is really you're really passionate about is clean water, then start working. Find other people who are really passionate about clean water in your area. And I guarantee you, no matter where you live, there are people who are already thinking about these things. You can find them. And then the, think of the SDGs as a lens, or if we think about it as a checklist or maybe um, trivial pursuit, you know how you get each, you're trying to collect a slice of each of the colors. If you're working on clean water, you can think about, well, how do I improve gender equality through this clean water project? How is this clean water project impacting racial inequality? Where is poverty showing up and how we're doing this project? How is this project impacting? impacting green infrastructure, green energy. And instead of trying to do all of the things in the SDGs, instead use it as a wheel to start filtering your project and making sure you're considering all these facets and whatever the thing is that brings you joy and that you're passionate about. I'll definitely make sure to include that How to Save the Planet podcast. But I think probably one of the best things for everyone listening, one of the best things to do is continue to educate yourself. I think by doing that, you start making connections. I couldn't recommend platforms like Clubhouse anymore to be able to find these rooms and just listen to who's doing something and then to message them and figure out how you can partner and help. Because a lot of the context you gave there, Helen and Elena, were super valuable from groups to partner with, whether it's with the uh, MSIs, HBCUs, or SCSN. But sometimes I'd also say is even look in your your backyard, you know, that's it. You can go, there's a lot of organizations in different areas and you can look to volunteer or raise money or, or do all sorts of things. And one thing I really appreciate you said, Elena, is doing something that fills your bucket of joy because burnout is real. I think we all know that. And if you're not really uber passionate about it, it's it's hard to wake up on a, at five o'clock on a Tuesday morning and, and get up and do it. So I think, it, and one thing I'd say, and maybe you'd agree is, when, if you're kind of soul searching, it's like kind of think about what what pisses you off, what really keeps you up at night and use that as a starting point to maybe figure out where to go. And this is if someone's you know trying to get involved, but that's at least what I like to say to others and I'm not sure if you agree or not, but, but yeah, so then I think one, one other kind of meandering thought process here as we're sort of circling up all the amazing context in this report and the work that you both do is today is what, September 10th? 2021, or as you mentioned, Helen, in the midst of a kind of a crazy ongoing pandemic that's changed a lot. I think COVID has exacerbated and accelerated and reduced progress in all different ways across the charts. But I'd love to know from both of you of sort of where we are now and where do you think the next nine years or so, what do they look like as we're trying to take action on this report? And as we're trying to move the needle on this no one left behind, you know, what do you think the next years look for? Are you, are you half glass, half empty, glass, half full type mindset? And uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I'm optimistic because as a person of color, you must be optimistic because you are constantly surrounded by continuous things that would normally make you not optimistic. But I'm optimistic in that, you know, I I do see progress, but we really do have a long way to go. And I'm thinking about this in the terms of some of the data that we haven't talked about in the report in the red of the indices, that when you look at it would make you not so optimistic, but by the fact that these indices have been created and we are working to to get this information out. I just listed a few things here that 
on many of the SDGs as a former teacher, still a teacher at Howard. If you looked on a grading scale, 100 from 90 to 100, 80 to 89 and so forth, below 60 and F, pretty much uh, not all the SDGs, but many of them are in the D and F range. But just finding that information out that certain groups aren't being served gives us a way to actually move forward. But I do think as we go forward, the new census data gives us reason to pause, to understand why the communities that are being left behind need to be served. They need to be implemented equally in all groups because you're seeing a changing America. I was looking just last night in preparation for this at some of the new census data. And what jumped out to me as we look forward for the next nine years, because if there's not justice, if there's not equity, if there's not parity, development is not sustainable. It will absolutely undermine it. And what jumped out to me, it is the, going to be the decade of what I call in combination and what they, they call in combination as well. What they found is that the multiracial group in terms of America is a lot more racially and ethnically diverse. And the white population has declined 8% and the multiracial which includes in combination with white, in combination with black, in combination with brown, in combination with all groups, are that's the, the growing group. In fact, all people under 18, 52% of all people under eight, 18 is now a majority minority, which means in combination with white, black, brown, if you like to use those terms, in so you, you really do have a multiracial America that's already here. And to recognize that those groups are not being served, served at the level of D and F, I wouldn't want my children to bring home a great card like that. So uh, we're making progress. I mean, we're back, you know, uh, the Paris Accords. I think the administration is moving ahead in some very powerful ways. And I think the work of SDSN is to be congratulated, to be championed. And so even though, but it's important to know where we are, it's important to know how we got here. I mean, that is so critical. I just want to say one word. I'm going to let Elena jump in. You know, going back to the history question, when you go to major cities, Chicago, New York, anywhere, Columbus, Ohio, you see massive segregation. Is that because people are just opting to live around people that look like them, we know, in fact, that that's a result of years of racist policies and practices. And to be able to say that and own that is really critically important. How do we get here? Understanding what does here mean and how do we move forward and who are we moving forward with? And so I just like to say that optimistic, but a lot of work to do. And that was a, almost a drop mic moment there. Helen, thank you for that. Spit and fire there. Elena, do you want to add on to that? Uh, that's a tough act to follow. Helen really said it all. I am optimistic. I think the thing that has given me the most hope is over the past year, at least where I live, there have been so many mutual aid organizations that have popped up where my community has really stepped up to help itself and to work to be in camaraderie with each other and to really try to cohere as a community. And I think that has been incredibly hopeful for me and incredibly joyful because I'm with other people who really care and are full-heartedly trying to do their small part 
And that has been extremely joyful for me. So I think sometimes being with other people is another reason why we should focus on doing things collaboratively is because that can give us hope. Working on this report with Dr. Bond and Dr. Lusain was incredibly joyful for me. Um, get, that gave me hope to be in collaboration with the both of them. And I think looking forward to the next nine years, we're going to have to really have the courage to be bold and imaginative. The small incremental change is not going to be significant enough to address the climate crisis and make sure that we have a planet for the next generations, that we have a life of dignity for the next generations. And so I think we really have to practice being brave and ambitious. Um, and I think being in community with each other will help us do that. Thanks, Lena. And I, from what I've heard from both of you is the summary of needing to look back and seeking to understand, acknowledging there were wrongs and coming to terms with that and really looking at how we collaborate in the right way moving forward. And I think everything you laid out was, is much more eloquently than what I just said, but just think that's a very pragmatic way to go about it. And to your last point there, Elena, I oftentimes maybe get a little frustrated when I meet, read reports about you know, one, two, 10% type improvements or decreases and something. And while that's great, I do think there's that whole old adage of maybe it was Einstein of, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Maybe we're kind of in the same model and making small incremental improvements, but we, we all know with the growth of the population and the strain on finite resources, some Malthusian catastrophe discussion, some stuff the way we do things really needs to have a level of disruptive change, you know, new kind of whole design thinking, rethinking how we consume, how we make policy, you know, everything that's related in the, the SDGs one through 17. And, and so on what I just said, I'd like to allow you both to maybe give one last sort of thought and call to action in regards to how we really think differently and need to approach the disruptive change in a respectful way, of course, and in certain ways to sustainably and effectively move forward and, and hopefully meet these goals set out in the 17 SDGs. Maybe I'll go first so Helen can have the final last word. I'm just thinking about, you know, if we're feeling ill and we have a fever and we think, oh, what we do need to do is make ourselves cooler. And so we just apply ice packs everywhere we might in a disorienting way just try to stop the fever but when the really thing is we need antibiotics because we have an infection and i think one of the things that allows us that history allows us to do is understand that what we have might not be just not treat the symptoms but actually look a little bit deeper and i think what we have to be brave in is brave enough to face how we got here and what's lying underneath and then brave enough to, to back the big, bold, people-led, ambitious solutions to fix those things. And I think if we do that, all of us will benefit and we'll all be able to live a life that is more aligned with what our dreams look like. I'd certainly like to back everything Elena has said, and I've enjoyed this podcast very, very, very much. You know, I'd like to see more voluntary reviews, organizations, universities willing to undergo to align their budgets to measure how well they are doing it towards sustainability progress. But just getting back to the basics, I'm thinking about our working group, inviting the listening audience to join us. There are four of us, four or five of us that are lead as co-chairs, but we have a large sort of advisory group. A baton out, I want to mention our zero hunger poverty working group that I would like for our working group on diversity, equity, and justice to work a little bit closer together, perhaps, on zero carbon emissions, their work as, as well. 
But I'd like to see the awareness raised of the SDGs, of their importance, their relevance, their meaning. Many people connect them to climate change, which is really critical because climate change is, is justice certainly for us all. It's, it's, it, these goals are certainly all interconnected. So the raise the awareness of SDGs and the great work of the United Nations in implementing this uh, across the, the globe. I, I just like to see more awareness raising and for us to use the language, although people have told me you can do the work of SDGs and they're right without necessarily using SDG language. But sometimes the language gives you a sense that people really do understand their importance. So thank you. Thank you, Kevin, for this opportunity. Of course, Helen. Thank you so much. And Elena as well. And to the whole SDSN team and, and everything, your, your team that you're working with, Helen, at Howard University, the work you're doing is incredible. I really love it. And the point of this podcast is to raise awareness on it and hopefully more people uh, take action on it and reach out. So we'll have all the show notes here. Make sure to check all everything in the show notes from the links and the, the LinkedIn profiles and everything because you all need to be talking and working with Helen and Elena and Sonia and everyone at the SDSN team. So on behalf of the SDG Talks community, thank you all for all you're doing. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks for listening to the SDG Talks podcast. Make sure to check out all the show notes for relevant links from this show. Please share and follow SDG Talks on social media and stay tuned for updates from the Unleash in United Nations community. The goal of the STG Talks is to bring you good content. So if you want to learn about something specific or have suggestions, please let us know. We look forward to seeing you next time on STG Talks.